you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the Gospel according to John, to the 16th chapter, where we are going to be reading verses 1 through 7. That's John chapter 16, verses 1 through 7, and again, you can find that passage on page 1061 in your pew Bibles. We find here at the beginning of this 16th chapter of the Gospel according to John, one of those chapter breaks that we have that have been added into the text of sacred scripture that really sort of perhaps leaves us scratching our collective heads a bit. Clearly, the first 12 or 15 verses of chapter 16 are but a continuation of the lesson that Jesus Christ has been teaching to his disciples here that began all the way back at the beginning of chapter 15. When Jesus began to unfold for his disciples life in union with him by faith. Life on the vine. And he did so, you will remember through this comparison of himself as the, as the vine while his true followers are the branches of that vine. He's made the point that they will only have life, they will only thrive when they as the branches are entirely, completely reliant upon the vine to bring life and vitality to their branch. Their fruitfulness is but a testimony to the vitality of the vine and not at all to their own ability to be fruitful. Faith in Jesus Christ is the gift of God and it always produces fruit in the branches that have, by the grace of Almighty God, been engrafted into that true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. We really do not know why the chapter break was added here. And beloved, that's okay. The truth is, I only bring it up to say that I had originally thought that I would end this series on abiding in Christ, on union with Christ, at the end of chapter 15. But upon further reflection this past week, I decided that it's certainly necessary to continue at least into the first half of this 16th chapter. The things that Jesus had mentioned in general earlier in the 15th chapter, he expounds upon here in this chapter much more specifically to his disciples. And though he gives his disciples here in the text before us this morning this very straightforward, very grim, if you will, truth that will very soon become a part of their existence, He also gives them a glimpse of the glorious work of Almighty God in the magnificent redemption of not only their souls, but indeed the souls of all of those whom He will call until that time when He will come again to make final separation of the wheat from the chaff. And so it's my hope this morning to point out to you three things here. Three things that Jesus makes perfectly clear here to his disciples. Three things that though they 
might have been hazy, or at least somewhat hazy to these disciples, he brings into a a much tighter, much sharper focus here. The first is his giving of a very difficult, very grim, very specific prophecy regarding their immediate futures in the days to come, when all of these things will certainly come to pass. That's first. Secondly, I'd like to look at the reason that Jesus gives for sharing this very glimpse into their future. And thirdly and finally, I would like to look at the glorious hope that these men and indeed all who trust in Jesus Christ by faith alone have in the fact that Jesus Christ would not merely stay physically here to comfort his people with his bodily presence alone, but he would leave for the benefit of his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. So I'd like you to follow along this morning as we read from the word of our Lord, John chapter 16. Again, I'll read verses 1 through 7. And this is Jesus speaking. And he says this. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful for the ordinary means of grace, the fact that we can gather together and we can sit under the preaching of your word with the full confidence that through the power of your spirit, faith within your people will be nourished and will grow to the glory of your name. And so, Father, we ask that you be with us this morning. Fill us with your spirit as we consider these things. Quiet our restless hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus here wastes no time. He immediately gets to the reason that he has told the disciples these things. These things, of course, is referring to what he had previously said at the end of chapter 15, pointing towards the world's hatred for him, and of course, their forthcoming hatred of these very men because of him. 
And how ultimately their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself really is an absolute rejection of God himself and certainly a rejection of the Father. No, up until this point, he has spoken to them of this hatred. He's only done so in a very general sense. He's pointed it out without necessarily fleshing it out for them. He's not yet been specific as to how exactly it will be that the world's hatred will become manifested to them. He's also spoken to them in very general terms about the coming of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, their helper in the days to come. And again, he's done so in a general sense up until this point, beginning here at the very beginning of chapter 16, which is perhaps the reasoning that went into uh, the breaking point being between the breaking point between the 15th and 16th chapter of John being made here. We don't know. Because now he expounds even further on both of these things, leaving his disciples with a very detailed description of what was going to happen in the very near future in their lives. And though it is certainly a grim picture painted by Jesus for these men, I want to tell you it is not meant to fill them with fear or trepidation or even with despair but actually to encourage them and to lead them to wholeheartedly place their hope and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth, and in him alone. He says to them, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. That word here is rendered, that's rendered here as made to stumble is a Greek word that perhaps will sound familiar to you. The word is skandalizo. It's where we get the English word for the word scandal. And it literally means to place a snare in the way of. So this is the purpose of Jesus expounding to his disciples what the very fast approaching future held for them. Now he moves past speaking of just the emotion of hatred that's going to be leveled against them because of him. And he prophesies again very specifically exactly how it is that that hatred is going to become manifested in their lives. Beloved, it is a picture that I am certain had to strike absolute terror in the hearts of these men. He's already told them that he would in fact be leaving them very soon and then these things would be coming to pass. And these disciples, who undoubtedly felt some sense of security at least, some sense of safety, as long as they were in Jesus' physical presence, now get a glimpse of the terror that is going to be coming in light of his absence. And Jesus tells them that the hatred that the world has for him 
is going to result in some pretty severe changes in their lives. And we see what those changes are. They're going to be excommunicated or put out of the synagogue. You see that here, right? They're going to be cut off from among their own people. And I want to make sure that we put this in proper perspective. I think we, in our current context, perhaps do not view the devastation of this that it truly is. In our day, in the land of the existence of a church on every street corner, we may miss the weight of what Jesus is saying here. Hopefully, in our Reformed tradition, where we have held very strongly on to the very biblical notion of exercising church discipline, which could lead to even the tragic event that someone could actually be cut off from the people of God and the blessings of word and sacrament, we still have some sense, at least, of the weight of these words. But by and large in our culture, they have lost much of their weight. If one is cut off from a particular church, there is, of course, always the church down the road that would be happy to have me on their roster. That's not the case for these men. We need to understand that. To be cut off from the synagogue is to be cut off from the supposed known people of God. Cut off. And it was scandalous. It was a scandal in the truest sense of the word. To be put out of the synagogue was far worse than simply being put out of the public worship house. It was to be, to be removed from society. To lose your name. To have the label of moral outlaw. It was the removal of any respect and any camaraderie that they had enjoyed with their former associates, their perceived brothers and sisters in the family of God. It was a badge of such shame that they would not only endure being over their own heads, but even the heads of their families. When Jesus first began to speak about the hatred of the world, these men would have undoubtedly been bothered by it. But they probably had not realized the full weight and the subsequent consequences of that hatred until Jesus spoke these very words to them. You and I, when we hear that we're hated by someone, we can live with it a whole lot easier if that hatred never moves past just being someone's emotion or an emotion that someone has towards us. It may and it probably should bother us, but its effect is never fully realized until that hatred leads to some sort of action. Until it's made manifest in some tangible and ugly way. That is what Jesus is very vividly now describing to these men. The hatred of the world, which I want you to notice in this case, is the so-called people of God. 
This isn't in distinction from everyone else. This is lumping the so-called people with God with the world. The visible church. The hatred of the world is going to bring about severe consequences for these men. These disciples. They're going to bear the shame of being put out from the people of God. But it gets even more terrifying, and what he says next really should cause us all to sort of just stop and think about what Jesus is saying here. First, he tells them they are going to be scandalized and removed from the known and accepted people of God, denied their privileges as people of God, including public worship. And then he tells them that they will also, in fact, be killed... And not only will they be killed, but the people who kill them are going to do it somehow thinking that they are rendering service to God himself. You get a sense of the weight of this. This is the lot for these disciples of Jesus Christ. What are they going to receive? For they're leaving everything behind and following Jesus of Nazareth? They're going to be publicly scandalized. They're going to be beaten and they're going to be killed. And their persecutors are going to be those who truly believe themselves ably employed in the service of Almighty God. That's the truth. Can you imagine the terror that this had to strike in the hearts of these men? Though this reaction from the world probably should not surprise us. Beloved, isn't this human nature? Human nature hates the good. It's repulsed by righteousness. And it always lashes out at even the notion of God's grace. It has been this way from the very beginning of the history of mankind. Natural man hates righteousness. You want scriptural proof? We don't have to go very far in the word of God. Of course we see it in the fall itself, but then we see it again all the way back with Cain and Abel. Right? Cain... A worker of the ground, Abel, a keeper of sheep, and in the course of time, both men brought before the Lord an offering. Cain brought his from the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock and its fat. What happened? Well, we're told in Genesis chapter 4 that God respected Abel and his offering but not Cain and his offering. Cain, of course, becomes hurt and angry, and he begins to grumble. God graciously comes to him and says, Cain, why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Listen up, Cain. Sin is at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. 
God has mercifully spoken. Right? Cain has been rebuked by Almighty God Himself, and really, that should be the end of the story, right? But of course, we know that's not the end of the story. The God-given righteousness of Abel is a stench in the nostrils of natural Cain. And so what does Cain do to alleviate this brewing hatred for his brother's acceptance in the eyes of God? His brother's righteousness in the eyes of God? He's overcome with a murderous rage and Cain takes his hands and he kills his brother. Truly is nothing new under the sun, is there? Those who hate God hate his people. And that will never change, regardless of how pretty of a wrapper the world tries to put on that hatred. It's lipstick on a pig. It might make the pig a little more attractive, but at the end of the day, it never changes the fact that it's still a pig. Human nature never changes apart from the Holy Spirit of God. And His grace is never popular in a world that's opposed to it. And try as the world may to conjure up an acceptable form of God's grace, they will never succeed because in the end, the natural man always says in his heart, away with grace, away with God. This truth is going to lead to the deaths of these very men. And it's why the Apostle Paul says with confidence in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer some form of persecution. The world is opposed to righteousness. Do you see that here, beloved? This is per, there is perhaps something here that is even more frightening for us to consider than even this. Do you see how it becomes very clear here from the words of Jesus that earnestness in religion is never truly a proof that anyone is a sound Christian? I want you to think about it. It's certainly implied here. You can't deny what Jesus is saying to these men. Not all earnestness, not all desire born out of a serious or even intense state of mind is right. There is a seriousness of mind that is not accompanied by knowledge of who Jesus Christ is as he has revealed himself to man. And that seriousness, that earnestness leads to destruction. Destruction of self ultimately in destruction of others. Without the gracious leading of the Spirit of Almighty God, it is a slippery slope from the hill of being sincere, like Saul of Tarsus, who very sincerely nodded his approval to the deaths of Christians in the name of his service to Almighty God. Or worse, to those who very sincerely yelled out, crucify him. 
in the name of protecting the name of God. Beloved, it really should cause us to stop what we're doing and to ask ourselves a very difficult question about why it is that we do the things we do. What is it that we really trust in? While we justify our disgust with our brothers and sisters in Christ for whatever petty reason. Beloved, do not be deceived if it's anything other than faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ alone, by the grace of Almighty God alone, for the glory of Almighty God alone. Then you very well may be in danger of being earnest of being sincere about your pursuit of God and completely lacking in knowledge and the subsequent trust that will allow you to become a blessing to the people of God instead of a curse and a danger and a snare to them. Jesus then goes on to explain once again why it is that he's telling this terrifying, weighty truth to his disciples. And we see here, his reason really is twofold. First, we know that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is no tickler of itching ears. He's no stranger to the truth. He deals in the truth and there's no deceit in him. Therefore, he does not simply tell these men what they want to hear. Rather, he tells them what they so desperately need to hear. He's not going to ruin these men by indulging them with false expectations. Can you relate to that? Beloved, the truth is, none of us likes to hear the truth. Sometimes it seems that it would just be easier for us to have our flesh indulged for just a minute and have the truth at least a little bit sugar-coated, just enough so that it loses sometimes its, its very bitter edge. Have you ever done that? There's bad news to give and you just don't really want to hurt the person with the truth right away, even though the truth is inevitable and will eventually always make its way to the surface. And so you embellish or you take away or you sugarcoat the truth. Jesus will not do that to his disciples. And it's because he knows they desperately need and they will continue to need not to have their feelings pampered. But they need the truth. You know, I can remember my high school wrestling coach had this philosophy and it's probably... The reason, at least in my mind, I think he'll be remembered as one of the greatest wrestling coaches in the history of Ohio high school wrestling. I was coming off a decent season my junior year, and I'd managed through his guidance to go from being unranked uh, to making it all the way to the semifinals in the Ohio district tournament. And I just barely missed an opportunity to go to the state tournament that year. And so it was my first match of my senior year, we were at a tournament where it was pool wrestling. Everybody was lumped into uh, their weight class, and you only wrestled people uh, that you were matched up with in your pool. Very first match of my senior year, and so the expectations for me were pretty high. We were at this tournament, and they posted the matches for the first round, and I learned that the guy that I had to wrestle was the third place, third place placer at the state tournament the year before. And so... 
Knowing that, I went out to this quiet area behind the gym and I tried to mentally prepare myself and psych myself up to take on this Goliath. And as I'm back there sort of lying to myself about my own skill set, I saw my coach approaching me to give me a a pre-match pep talk. Only my coach was a real man. And not at all what you would expect to see in the movies where he would, of course, put his hands on my shoulders and filled my head with all kinds of thundering lies that so moved me that I would have gone out and soundly slew this giant before me, defying all logic, all reason, achieving the unthinkable because he was so good that he taught me to believe in myself. That's not what happened. Quite contrary to the romantic thing of idols, you know what this great coach and very, very influential man in my life said to me that day. He told me the truth. He put his hands on my shoulders, he looked me in the eyes, and he said, Steve, this guy is much, much, much better than you are. He's faster, he's stronger, and let's face it, he's quite a bit smarter than you. He makes much, much fewer mistakes than you make. And so your only hope is to go out there, wrestle smart, do your best, and hope he makes some kind of glaring error, uncharacteristic error, and because of it, you can find a way to eke out a win. So I proceeded to go out. And that guy not only made no mistakes, but he soundly whipped me in front of all my family My coach knew there was more than a good chance I was going to lose. And rather than lie to me about my perceived abilities, he told me the truth. And because of it, I never doubted that the reason I lost was because I was just not as good as the guy who beat me. I never doubted what my abilities were. I went on to have a great year despite my humiliating first match. He told me the truth precisely because it was the truth. And he respected me enough not to lie to me. Jesus tells the disciples here the hard truth because he knows that what they need is the truth. And they need it more than they need to be comforted by soft peddling and sugarcoating the inevitable. The second reason Jesus tells them the truth seems, at least on the surface anyway, to really defy logic. Do you know what that reason is? He does it to encourage them. You say, that doesn't sound very encouraging. By the way, fellas, excommunication, death, people who think they're doing the service of God. That's your lot in life. He tells them to cheer their hearts. And you say, how? Beloved, history will prove the words of Jesus Christ to be 100% accurate. And these men will not be surprised by that truth, but rather they will embrace it in God's grace. And as the world closes in on these men, they will remember the words of their master and be reminded that the way of the cross is the only way to the crown. They have been forewarned. Their master knew exactly what would come. And he very, very lovingly told them ahead of time, this is what's coming. 
These are men that have counted the cost of being Jesus Christ's disciples. And they will move forward from here. And they will embrace the death of martyrs to the glory of God for the furthering of his glorious gospel, which you and I are recipients. It's one of the reasons, beloved, that I so hate, so despise, and continue to call out any and all prosperity teaching when I see it going on in the church of Jesus Christ today. Listen to me. Jesus never promised that this life would be free of difficulty. But he does promise that the struggle of this life for those who truly belong to him by faith will bring about his glory and ultimately our own preparation to spend eternity in the glory of heaven, worshiping him face to face upon his throne. Can you praise God for that? I hope so. Because what a glorious hope. The haziness that is such a part of this life will be cleared away once and for all. It is this truth that the disciples ultimately had to trust. It's the very truth that you and I must embrace. Rather than chasing after the false prophets of our day who are paving the road before us with beautiful false expectations creating in some a false sense of security as they trust in things like their sincerity and their earnestness above and beyond the finished work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness being the only thing that can reconcile sinners to a holy God. Beloved, do you see the hope in the raw truth here of the words of Jesus Christ? Is this your experience? Lastly, this morning, I would point out the glorious hope that Jesus teaches these men by giving them the fact that he was not staying with them. But indeed, he has work to do. And so he must go to another place, and that work will be far more beneficial for them and to you and I than if he had remained bodily present, physically present to comfort and to guide them or protect them. He tells them, do not lose heart. And he graciously tells them why. We have to pick this up. Look at what he says. But now I go away. And yet none of you ask me, where are you going? You're consumed with thinking that I'm away from here. That I'm, you're away from my physical presence and my protection. None of you ask me where I'm going. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. We know, of course, he's referring to the Holy Spirit coming to them. And indeed, he will come on the day of Pentecost. For reasons that we cannot fully understand with finite minds, Jesus ties his ascension to the right hand of the Father with the giving of the very Spirit of God by the grace of God to equip his people with everything they need, not only to be reconciled to God, but to attain eternal life right now. And though the disciples here cannot fully grasp the deep and rich truth 
that is present here in this statement of Jesus alluding to his ascension and his finished work here on earth his, and his continuing work at the right hand of the Father in glory, we do know that they will grasp it. In due time, according to the perfect will of Almighty God. And you say, well, how can we know that that happened? Beloved, these men became very different men after Pentecost. And because he revealed this truth and its fullness to these men, you and I now have before us the entire counsel of God in his holy and perfect and infallible word. Do you understand what a gift that is? We know now that Jesus Christ had to come. He had to live in the flesh of a man. He had to remain blameless in the eyes of the holy law of God. We know that he had to go then to the cross and endure the pain and the suffering of having the full wrath of God poured out upon him because of our sin. The sin of my life, the sin of your life poured out on Jesus as he stood in our place and took the punishment that we so deserve. He had to come and live and be found blameless Also, he could stand in our place and be tortured to death because of our sin. We also know he had to rise from the dead in order to soundly defeat sin, death, and the devil once and for all, causing the sting of death to truly be taken away. We know that the finished work of Jesus Christ included his leaving this world behind, not so that we could struggle in his physical absence, but so that the promised Spirit of God would come and turn the stony hearts of the Bride of Christ to the cross of the glorious Bridegroom. And of course it doesn't end there, does it? It's enough. That would be enough, but it doesn't end there. We know that now He is not at rest or at ease. We are told He is actively at work acting on our behalf, sanctifying the prayers and the works of those who belong to him by faith, those who have truly been bought with a price that no man could ever value in terms of this world. Beloved, it's the glorious gospel. And it ought to shape your thoughts, your hearts, and your lives. Because it's the truth. It should be the measure that you bring your sinful justifications to in order to have them adjusted. I wish we had more time. Time's not going to allow us this morning to read it, but I want to encourage you all in the week to come to read the Heidelberg Catechism question and answers number 40 through 50 because they deal with this very thing, the finished work of Christ and his ascension. And I want you to let it encourage you this week as you meditate upon the glory of our salvation through the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ in power for us. Amen? Let's pray.